When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Water but also water. When I was writing the book The Innovation Delusion with Andy Russell, I was tasked with writing the chapters on infrastructure. It was a time when the Flint water crisis was very much in the news. Indeed, Flint had become a symbol for American infrastructure problems in general. In over a few years, it came out that thousands of communities in the United States had problems with lead in their water as bad or even worse than Flint. Now, the story of Flint and lead in water is primarily, though not exclusively, a story about towns and cities. It's a story about centralized and often large infrastructure systems. It's water in the first sense of pouring out of faucets as opposed to the second sense of what we are flushing down the toilet. But as I was researching about the state of infrastructure in the United States, I came across a different and far less known story. Philip Alston, a special rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights in the United Nations, toured the United States and what he found was shocking. When he was going through the state of Alabama, he told reporters of what he saw. I think it's very uncommon in the first world. This is not a sight one normally sees. I'd have to say I haven't seen anything like this. And one thing that Alston was seeing was that poor people in rural America were living without septic tanks or any form of waste treatment. Their houses had what are called straight pipes, pipes that deposit urine and waste in open air pits. 
Journalist Ed Pilkington visited Lowndes County, Alabama, and filed a report about what he saw in The Guardian. Of one home with a straight pipe, Pilkington wrote, The open sewer was festooned with mosquitoes, and a long cordon of ants could be seen trailing along the waste pipe from the house. At the end of the pool nearest the house, the triacly fluid was glistening in the dappled sunlight. A closer look revealed that it was actually moving, its human effluence heaving and churning with thousands of worms. Studies found that most residents in Lowndes were coming into contact with human waste, and in fact, hookworm and other so-called tropical diseases, diseases we haven't even been testing for anymore, which have devastating effects on human health, especially for children, had re-emerged in these places. And while Lowndes became a symbol of the straight pipe problem, straight pipes and the lack of septic tanks is an issue throughout rural America. What I didn't realize at the time, maybe because I was too dense or even too sexist or racist, is that our awareness of the problems in Lowndes is largely, though not solely, the result of the long, hard work of one person, one woman, one black woman, named Catherine Coleman Flowers. Catherine Coleman Flowers is the director of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice in Alabama, and in 2020, she was recognized for her efforts by being awarded a MacArthur Genius Prize. In this interview, Catherine and I discuss her memoir, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. We talk about her work, we talk about her life, and how she became who she is. Because among other things, she comes from a place and a family very much connected to the civil rights movement. I'm sure Catherine Coleman Flowers does not see herself as a hero, but she is a hero, and I believe her story is one that everyone should hear. I hope you enjoy this episode. Get excited. Catherine, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to talk to you. Waste is, it's, it's a powerful and troubling, and I also think hopeful book in the end. Maybe the best way to begin is to understand the problem you've been fighting for nearly 20 years now. So if you meet someone who doesn't know about your work, how do you explain to them what you call America's dirty secret? Well, it's really about uh, communities that have either no wastewater treatment infrastructure. In other words, when they flush their toilets, it comes out on top of the ground. It could go into a creek, you know, or into a pasture. Um, it also means that there are people that have paid for infrastructure to treat wastewater and it is failing. So when they flush their toilet, sometimes it comes back into their home comes back through their bathtubs or end up on top of the ground. Uh, and that those are on-site septic systems. And then the third problem that we've discovered are those people that are part of these community collection systems that are supposed to be what is uh, the gold standard in terms of small communities and the answer, but we're finding that they're failing as well. And a lot of this, some of it is, is poor uh, design Mm-hmm. Actually, all of it is poor design, but I think uh, another part of it is that we're using technologies that were developed 
at not taking into account climate change. And huh. these technologies generally have pushed on people in poor communities um, yeah. and, and, and rural communities in particular, and a lot of times marginalized communities, poor communities and communities of color. Yeah. You know, one thing you've done is take people on tours of homes for, for many years now. Um, what what do, would people expect to see on these tours you take people on? Well, they, they get to see the, the kinds of problems that I've described. They get to see uh, straight piping if they look outside of a home uh, where they see a pipe generally running from, for an example, a mobile home, or it could be running from a house. Uh, and when people flush their toilets on the ground and they can see the actual um, product of that, including toilet paper. Um, they get a chance to see in some cases how it's so bad that the sewage is all over the area because the ground holds water. And because the soil holds water, uh, uh, it's, it's just sits there. And, and sometimes it, it gets saturated. And, and when we have a lot of rain, um, in some cases, not even a whole lot of rain because the water tables are so high, depending on where I take them in the county, they can potentially see uh, yards flooded with sewage. Hmm. Wow. You, most of your work focused on Lowndes County, though this is not by any means a Lowndes County problem as you and others have pointed out. Can you tell us a bit about Lowndes County and what the makeup of it is? Well, Lowndes County is, is in, in Alabama. It's located between Selma and Montgomery. And the interesting thing about Lowndes County's history is that it was named for a person who actually advocated secession from the union prior to John C. Calhoun. Hmm. So that's why we have Lowndes County, Georgia, Lowndes County, Mississippi, wow. and Lowndes County, Alabama. And I think people that may not have understood the context of that before understand it much better now. Yeah. Uh, and Lowndes County at one point, uh, well, going back to Montgomery, and Montgomery became at the end of the the international slave trade, which was ended in the constitution, uh, they ended up uh, becoming like a center for the domestic slave trade. And a lot of people were brought from throughout the South and the upper South um, and, and ended up uh, in places like Lowndes County, sold into slavery in places like Lowndes County. And a lot of my ancestors are from that area. Uh, in addition to uh, the other part of the history that people don't know is that Lowndes County was also one of the places where the Creek Wars were fought. Hmm. Uh, one of the battles was fought, one of the battles was fought at a place called Holy Ground, which was near, right on the Alabama River. And, uh, and my ancestry also goes there as well, hmm. because during those wars, there were African-Americans and Native Americans that were there together. Yeah. Um, there in Lowndes County. And that's when Andrew Jackson came to, to uh, the consciousness of, of the country because he was sent to put down, supposedly put down these, these wars. And, and that informed a lot of the, the, um, the policy yeah. that was set up around indigenous um, peoples here in this country and, and led to the Trail of Tears. Yeah. So, Lowndes County's history in terms of the civil rights movement uh, is very, very strong because the Lowndes County Freedom Organization was founded there 
tested the voting rights movement. Students came from around the country, part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and helped local people to organize. Lowndes County had a sharecroppers union earlier. There was also uh, W.E.B. Du Bois spent time doing research there, doing a labor study there, uh, and was known as Bloody Lowndes because of the racial, the history of racial trauma wow. there. And there were two white people who were killed in Lowndes County, and it made the, the national and international news. One was um, one was Jonathan Daniels, who was an Episcopal seminarian, who went down during the Selma to Montgomery March and organizing local people for the right to vote and he was killed. And the second person uh, was Vala Luzo, who was a Detroit housewife that was killed in Lowndes County, carrying marches back and forth from Selma to Montgomery. So those are his history of trauma, uh, I think is, is, is one of the things that captures the imagination of people when they learn about the story is yeah. that it's just a continuation of that same history. What percentage of uh, the population is African-American today in Lowndes? At least 80% okay. of the population is African-American. Yeah. Waste is, is, isn't just a story of lack of rural sanitation. It's also your story. So can you tell me, uh, tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up and what your family was like? Well, I, my, my mother, um, my mother and father were both activists. Um, I just recall, I was, I was actually born in, in Birmingham. And I remember being in Birmingham as a child. Um, and uh, the, the, the significant things that happened when I was there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church where there were young people around my age that were killed yep. that were attending Sunday school. Remember that, that's seared in my memory. Um, the, the demonstrations that were taking place in Birmingham. Um, my mother participated in some of those demonstrations. I remember it seemed like everybody in my neighborhood was going to jail because they went to participate nonviolently in these demonstrations. Yeah. Um, and there was also um, later, you know, we, my, I found out my parents were very involved in Lowndes County before we actually moved to Lowndes County huh. in the late 1960s because my father was a native of Lowndes County and was also... Um, very, both parents were very involved in the movement there. And I characterized them as kind of like the jailhouse lawyers of the community because that's where people went when they had questions. And we moved to Lowndes County, you know, some people were deprived of the right of an education. And there were still people that could only, um, that could only uh, sign, they couldn't sign their name, they would sign an X. And so a lot of times they needed somebody they trusted to read the yeah. mail they received, especially if it came from the government, to help them to to, uh, to interpret what was there and make good decisions. So uh, my parents were very actively engaged in that, and we often had activists from around the country that would come and visit our home, or they would visit the home of a family called the Jacksons, uh, the Jackson family, uh, who hosted the Snake Freedom House on their property, and they they're kind of like an also part of that civil rights history of Lowndes County. And so when they wouldn't come to our house, oftentimes they would call my parents and, and tell them that someone was at their home and I would get to go to their home to hear. Some big people. names too, right? Some big names. Yeah, some big city. names. There were people like Stokely Carmichael um, came to Lowndes County. There were people like Dennis Banks and Russell Means who were part of the American Indian Movement. 
Yeah. It came to Lowndes County. Um, and then there were others through the years that, that came. And even as, um, you know, I think that that informed the way in which I've learned to help people to see yeah. uh, what we were trying to, to deal with and invite them to come and visit largely because of that history and that exposure to what happened in the 1960s. Yeah. I think it's fair to say your own work as an activist began quite early in, in both high school and college. And this includes some organizing that led to the a superintendent in your school district resigning. So what do you think are the highlights of the early activist career of, of Catherine Coleman Flowers? Well, I, I think that that was informed and inspired largely because um, in my family, we valued education so much. Yeah. And, and my parents felt that the the Wakita opportunity, even if they were denied, that was to make sure that we had access to it. Yeah. And and because I valued education so much, I realized that my education was being shortchanged because at my high school, usually classes would stop at 12 and we start having dances and yeah. parties in the afternoon, which was not uh, conducive, I thought, to, to, to me going to college. I mean, I had visions of becoming the first black female justice on the Supreme Court at the time. Yeah. I knew that wasn't going to happen if I um, was not allowed the opportunity to attend class because in, in any school, it, if you have to choose between a football game and yeah. I'm just using the football game as an analogy, but a, a dance and these are young people in rural communities, um, in one place that don't get a chance to socialize except at church or on the weekends. And, and they given the choice to leave class, to participate in the dance or go to class, people not going to class. Yeah. So sometimes I would be the only one sitting in the class. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't gonna work. But there were other things about the principal as well, like um, when he showed the, the film, The Mac, which was a film that was R-rated that we couldn't mm. have seen in the local theater without our parents being present with us. But it was about a pimp. So why would he show that to us? This yeah. is seventh through twelfth grade in um, doing a school day, and I was invited to to speak um, to be part of a, a program called uh, Focus, which was. Um, which was uh, hosted by a local NBC affiliate and Tracy Larkin, who just passed away uh, last week. And when I went to speak on that program, I talked about, you know, I read my poetry because I was a poet then. And, um, and I talked about my education and there was a person in the audience, her name was uh, Penny Weaver. Uh, and she asked me what I write about my school for uh, this newsletter that she was doing. And it was, I didn't know then, I didn't know about the American Friends Service Committee, which was a part of their project that they had. They're dealing with education. Um, and so I wrote this, this, uh, this article. And then my parents received a, a call from two gentlemen from the American Friends Service Committee asking to come and speak with them and then they talked about recruiting me and making me a Robert Kennedy Youth Fellow for the Robert Kennedy Memorial Foundation, where uh, I learned about the Alabama Code 
as it relates to education. And I documented every violation that I saw in my school, which led to the removal of the principal. And then ultimately I spent the summer, uh, summer of 1975 in Washington, DC, learning about Capitol Hill. And part of uh, that included visiting with Senator Everett Kennedy at the time. And I remember during that meeting, he said, um, he asked me which, what was the name of my school. And I said, Lowndes County Training School. You know, and outside of the South, the training schools denote schools for the delinquent children. Yeah. And that was one, that was the beginning of my education to find out that these names were to, uh, to, to suggest that that we were less than uh, uh, ready, yeah, or or less than than in some cases I felt less than human yeah. when it came to competing for college. So I went back home and talked to my parents, and at the first school board meeting, we called for the name of the school to be changed. That was when the superintendent resigned, hmm. and you know, looking back now. You know, on that, all those years ago, yeah. and looking at what's happening with the names uh, of Confederate memorials and bases being, re you know, those names being changed and what all that meant. Yeah. But there were so many vestiges of Jim Crow and so many vestiges of slavery that still existed. And there were people that were willing to stake their careers on that. And wow. I see that there are people willing to stake their careers on it right now. That's and it was sure. wrong then, and it's wrong now. Yeah. You know, when I read about your long, young life, it's a really powerful story of development of yourself as a leader and activist. And some of it includes lucky breaks and opportunities, including having the parents you had and other mentors that you talk about. But there's also a, a real drive for justice that shines through throughout the book, I think. So where do you think that comes from? How do you explain that part of yourself? You know, that's, that's interesting because I this morning um, I read an email from a relative that I've met through the DNA test. Uh-huh. And 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 he put together, he lives in the DC area. He put together, he shared with me a video on his family's history. And his grandfather, who was from Birmingham was uh, very involved in the civil rights movement. And he sent a picture of him with Dr. King. Hmm. He was a labor organizer. And I'm finding as I go through, you know, of course we all have the different kinds of backgrounds as we look honestly at our history. We have all kinds of characters in our family. But what I found is this strong, um, a strong thirst for justice yeah. uh, throughout uh, my family history and throughout my DNA. And I believe that that that, uh, that drive and that zeal is a part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes me even more curious about, yeah. about it. And, and, and I've taken a number of DNA tests when I go back and I look and I look at the various intersections on where it was, whether it's, and I'm in touch with now because of what these DNA tests I have a cousin in Germany <laughs> who uh, who probably was part of uh, probably was connected to some folk who could have been slave owners here. Mm. Um, 
in the U.S., but we, we communicate quite often. Hmm. And I have cousins in other parts of the world now that I'm in touch with, and I'm finding out one common thread that's there, that some of them were leaders. Yeah. You know, I came from people who, who just did not accept the status quo and, and more recently found that I had Haitian DNA. Hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised as there was some two something over to it is in there somewhere too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that shines through in your book is, um, you know, the importance of your faith life. And I, I think that we know from history that that's true for much of the civil rights movement in general. So, you know, how do you, how do you see this and what role does faith play in, in your work? Well, the role that faith plays in my work is that it makes the impossible possible. And sometimes when, when no one sees that vision or understands that vision, you know, I, I, I turn to biblical characters that, um, whose, whose lives were somewhat parallel mine. Mm -hmm. And I get strength and inspiration from that. And I do a lot of praying. And I know that my ancestors did a lot of praying. Uh, I know that just from what I would feel when I would be in church as a kid and we would have prayer service to open up the service. And back then we had prayer service, you know, the churches weren't made like they are made today. You could actually hear the, the voices echo and throughout the church. Mm -hmm. And when people were calling on God and they were actually kneeling down men in the church and something later women in the church, but it was that it, it was that and, and seeing uh, how it gave um, the, the strength to face adversity and uh, the nonviolent protest, knowing that they were facing ravenous uh, individuals who were willing to kill if necessary. Yeah. To keep things the way they thought they were should be or to keep black people subjugated. And I just saw, I just remember it always in my mind, think about it, and, and even some of the conversations I've had with people that were with Dr. King is how sometimes they'd be scared, but they would pray. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's what I do a lot of. I pray whenever I wanna do, uh, whenever I deal with adversity or if uh, I have to deal with people coming against me in a negative way, I stop and pray about it. And I do believe that prayer changes things. Yeah. But I believe that it's prayer with my father. My, my father read the Bible from cover to cover several times. Huh. I mean, that, that was part of his ritual before he went to bed at night and he would read the Bible. Uh, and he could quote it, something mm -hmm. I can't do. I, but he, he could quote it from memory. And one of the things, and my father had an 11th grade education hmm. and did some outstanding things. Mm -hmm. So I, I, one of the things he would always tell us that we talk about as a family, he said, Catherine, if you make one step, God would make two. Hmm. So that's, I believe that in everything that I do, that if I'm, and if I'm doing the right thing, and if I'm loving my neighbor as I want to be loved, or I treat people the way I want to be treated, I think that's all of the, all of those are part of Christian traditions and looking out for the poor. Mm -hmm. And for the least of these in our society, I believe that God gave me gifts to help other people, not to help myself. Yeah. Only. And, and that's, that's what we need to change in this country. There are some people who feel that 
that that they're blessed to only bless themselves. Yeah. But I think that we have greater blessings when we use our blessings to bless others as well. Amen to that. Um, in, uh, you know, Waste is such a, a rich and powerful story, and I, I just can't recommend it to listeners enough. In the book you write, I went to college, got married, joined the Air Force, taught school in Washington, D.C., North Carolina, and Detroit, worked in a congressional office, and got my master's degree in history, yet my roots kept pulling me back. What do you think was pulling you back? I think it was it was the genuineness of, of the people. You know, one of the things that I can say about Alabama, a lot of people say, why do you want to live in Alabama? First of all, I'm from Alabama. And second, there's a genuine, when you connect with people, there's, a, there's like an authentic um, connection that develops where people can put aside differences to talk to each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, that is what I, uh, that is what I've learned. And, and I think that's one of the things that pulled me back is that, you know, I remember if my car would stop somewhere, I didn't have to fear at one point, whether or not the person stopping was going to help me or not. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there was a time when, you know, if one of my brothers was caught speeding, the policeman would know my parents and take them home instead of taking them to jail. Yeah. You know, it was that kind of, it was, it was that. It was, it was also the connection to the land. You know, even now, if I feel anxious, if I drive to Lyons County, I live in Montgomery now, if I drive to Lyons County, it's something about the land. and It's something about being on the river uh, that, that is just so nostalgic to me, but it's also comforting. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it was that that always pulled me back and I always stayed connected to what was happening in Lowndes County. Um, there were people that I, I had constant conversations with when I was gone. So it was just, it, I guess it was natural for me to come back because mm -hmm. Lowndes County is very much a part of who I am. Yeah. What is, how do you think your master's degree in history has contributed to thinking? I'm always struck by throughout the book and even in your explanations or in our conversation today, the way you bring history in. How, how do you think that shaped you? Well, you know, my father was kind of like a griot or a storyteller, you know, an African-American uh, tradition. Uh, oral history is very much a part of that. So um, I think it was just a natural evolution for me to become a historian, actually. Uh, I can count in my generation at least two other historians <laughs> that, that <laughs> went to school and, and got degrees in history. Uh, one of them is my cousin, Joseph Cable, who just wrote a book uh, about the history of Alabama State University. He also wrote a book about the Tuskegee Airmen. Hmm. But um, uh, I, I think that history helped us to understand because we have to know where we came from to know where yeah. we're going, to understand where we are now and to project into the future. So uh, my degree uh, that I got from the University of Nebraska was very helpful because it allowed me to, to understand the history of indigenous communities better because I took a lot of classes huh. um, dealing with Native American history, but I also uh, took a lot of classes about European history and it helped me to understand 
and recognize when I saw Nazi propaganda, what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I'm seeing something similar to now in current times. And, and had it not been for my history degree and the studies that I, I undertook with, with some very amazing professors, um, I would not have the type of understanding that I have now. Yeah. When you started um, working as an economic development consultant in Lowndes in 2001, you, were, you weren't really focused on rural sanitation issues. There were a lot of other things that you were, you were, you were working on. So what changed, you know? Well, I, I, it became really clear that there were not going to be any real, um, uh, that there were not going to be any real economic development progress in Lowndes County without having the infrastructure in place to do it. Mm -hmm. And as I learned more about it, because I was first getting the official from the state, getting their official uh, narrative about why the problem was the way it was. But as I dig more deeply into it, I realized that that narrative was not complete and some of it wasn't even true. So uh, I, I knew that in order, we weren't gonna get anywhere without focusing on that first. Yeah. And once I started listening to people in the community, the residents who were dealing with the issue, I came to a different understanding. And as I traveled and went to other places, I found that this was not a uh, situation that was just unique to Lowndes County. So yeah. I, I knew that nobody, I had been told by folk, you know, Nobody's interested in this. It's not sexy. Nobody yeah. even report about it. And, and I, I knew that I had to do, I, I had to try as best I could to lift this up. Yeah. You, you know, your, your work's a lot about a lot more than septic tanks, um, but you know, septic systems are what most people use in, in a lot of cases or are supposed to use. So how much, you know, just because I think listeners Many live in cities and, you know, they won't have a feel for what septic tanks mean today. So how much do these systems cost? Well, the cost of these systems vary. Um, uh, just to give you an example of, of one uh, situation that we're dealing with right now. Um, I wrote about Pamela Rush in my, in, my, uh, in my book. And I ended up having to go back and write an epilogue to the book because Pamela passed away in... July of last year from COVID. Yeah. And we had really worked because Pamela was trying to, she wanted to create a better life for her family. Yeah. And part of that would be to get her out of that home that she was in into another home. And even when a donor came forward, what held up the process was the fact that she needed a septic system on the new property that she owned, which is right up the road from where she currently was living. And when we um, when we had to plan for where that home was sitting, it was almost like, you know, building a new home. Um, yeah. We had to plan for where that home was sitting. We had to also plan for a septic system. So we brought in engineers. And part of the process of getting a septic system, on-site system installed, which means that the system, you're, instead of it going to a major treatment plant, like here in Montgomery, it goes into a system that's on your property that's supposed to treat it. And when it goes to the field lines at a point, it's supposed to be, quote, drinking water quality. Yeah. So in this case, when they 
came in, they had to do what's called a percolation test. And the percolation test is to determine the rate at which the, the, um, the water drains through the soil. And doing that percolation test, they have to dig down. And when they dug down 25 inches, they struck water. Mm. So that meant that she could not have a traditional septic system. It had to be an engineered system. The engineered system was going to cost $28,000. This is a woman who was living off less than $1,000 a month. Yeah, and it was going to also cost a lot of money to maintain it. Yep, and she could not afford that. Yeah, and we went back to the engineers and we asked them. And this was a this was a half acre of land. You know, most people living in cities don't live on a half acre of land. Yeah, you know, they may live on a third of an acre if they live on that much, yeah. but on a half acre of land, and two thirds of that half acre of land was going to have to be for the septic system. And it was an expensive system. So most of her mobile home, her mobile home would have been closer to the road than we normally would have put a mobile home or any house for fear. You know, this is out in the country. They don't have street lights. Yeah. Somebody comes along at night and miss a turn and end up in her front door. So we, at the time that uh, she got sick, she was trying to make contact with the adjacent landowner. Uh, actually, I, I understood she made contact with him, but he wasn't sure because he didn't live in the county exactly where mm. this land was located. And she was trying to get specific information to him so he could sell it to her. Uh, so she could have a full acre and maybe have, be able to have a different type of system. That's, the, that's part of the limitations, but it also helped us to understand why a lot of people did not have septic systems in that community because they yeah. were so expensive. To, to, to work in order to supposedly work properly. And we don't know what that meant in terms of how long it was going to work properly. Now, on the other hand, recently, I just got a phone call from someone in Lowndes County who has a home that I'm sure values at least $200,000 with a failing septic system. Yeah. And, and, and we're sending engineers out to look at this septic system to give us an assessment of what's wrong so we can understand this, these are case studies yeah. to help us to understand why these systems are failing because part of what I am working on too is trying to get with uh, some of the brightest minds to create new technologies that will yeah. work because they're not working. And they may also be a problem in a lot of urban areas. We just mm. have not examined that. There are some yeah. areas that have expanded using septic systems and on-site septic systems. There are areas outside of New York City, yeah. in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, Maine I'm hearing about now, uh, areas around the country where they use septic systems to expand you know, to more suburban areas. And I believe that we're gonna see more interest in this because a lot of people are leaving cities because of COVID. Yeah. So if they're, a lot of these people have never had experience with a septic system before. Yeah. And I know we're going to have more complaints from those that are not accustomed to it because they're used to flushing and forgetting. Yeah. It sounds like we almost need a national standard to, to hold the industry to. I, I think we not only need a national standard to hold the industry to, I think we need to understand how many people are on septic systems in this country yeah. and how they're really working. Yeah. Which ones work and which ones don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, mm -hmm. and we have to also look at what damage a septic system can do if it's not working properly. 
Yeah. You know, because there are there are cases of septic systems that contaminate the water table mm -hmm. where people get sure. their drinking water yep. from. So we have to there, there are numerous reasons that 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 is in all of our best interest. And now they're finding in waste can actually test waste and see COVID. So we mm -hmm. we're, we still don't know how that's impacting people. They're saying yeah. we're being told that it's not, but it's too it's too soon to know yet. You know, the lack of rural sanitation in Lowndes and other areas um, creates enormous health problems, not least of which is the reintroduction of hookworms and other so-called tropical diseases in the country. So you know, how did you and others come to realize that hookworms and other tropical diseases had reemerged in the United States? Well, I was, I was actually called to uh, the home of a, of a woman that the health department was threatening to arrest health department officials. And this woman was in her 20s, she was pregnant. She had one child that was autistic and they had threatened to put her in jail and her family had to come up with $800 get a birth test. That was hard for them. You know, yeah. people don't understand that these are not, these are economic choices that people have to make to determine whether or not they're gonna eat, yeah. whether or not they're gonna be able to communicate with folk. I mean, there are all kinds of other things. It's, it's an either or. You know, so that that happened in that particular case. And when I went to her home, she was straight piping and it was going into a pit. And in that pit were um, was feces and it was overflowing at that time because it was, we had gotten a lot of rain. It was during the month of October. Uh, you know, again, climate change, you know, we in October, usually you wouldn't see mosquitoes, but this thing was teeming with mosquitoes. Yeah. Um, and I had on a dress and holes, and those mosquitoes bit me through my 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 holes that I hosiery that I was wearing to the point where I could actually see the blood stains on, on my hosiery. And I didn't think anything about it right away because I've always been a mosquito magnet. But um, <laughs> but when my body broke out in a rash and I went to see my doctor to see, went to get medical assistance to see what was going on, and they couldn't determine what it was. They Actually, they did um, they did blood tests, and all my blood tests came back negative. Didn't indicate anything was wrong. And and that's when I asked. Uh, I said my nurse practitioner, her name is Kim Hindi, and I asked her, "Is it possible that there's something in the United States that they're not testing for mm. that doctors aren't trained for because this is not supposed? They don't acknowledge that this exists in the United States." And she said, "Yeah, it's possible." So in the, somewhere in the course of time, I read an op-ed in the New York by a Dr. Peter Hotez, who's now become one of the leading spokespersons on the COVID infections. Uh, and I found, I started Googling him on, after I read it, I started Googling him on, um, on, on my computer, got an email address for him. I emailed him, he emailed me right, about, right away. And I told him about my experience. I told him what I'd seen. And I asked a lot of what we would call educated questions. Mm -hmm. And we met that next week because he it's just so happened he was going to be in Atlanta at a conference dealing with tropical medicine and tropical disease. And he said, I'm going to send my parasitologist there and we're going to look for hookworms. And that's how it happened. We, and still, even hearing that, I, I had no idea that we were going to find what we found. Wow. And, and we collected fecal 
soil, blood and water samples because we wanted to make sure that uh, we could validate it in other ways too. So yes, and I, I did not know about hookworm. I went back and read the book, The Journal of Laziness that talked about the founding of the, um, uh, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, which mm -hmm. was, which came about as, you know, because of their sanitation commission and then it evolved, but the sanitation commission evolved because they were trying to stamp out hookworm, which yeah. is prevalent in the South and how it gave rise to health. So there's a whole history around that, but we, we obviously, a lot of areas were left out. And even in, I remember I wrote a paper uh, when I was in school about um, disease and history. And one of the things that in, in my research that I did, I went back and I found that even doing this study, um, when they were trying to stamp out who, they, the, the way they looked for it in, in black communities was that they hired a doctor at Tuskegee who sent out surveys to doctors uh, and most of the surveys came back that they didn't see who. So yeah. they, they, the assumption was that uh, black people couldn't get hookworm. But but that was but think about it. If we we're talking about the early part of the uh, of the 1900s, most people that would have been living uh, in rural communities didn't have access to black doctors. Yeah. These black doctors would have been in urban areas where hopefully they could have flushed and forgotten it. Right. Time. Yeah. So, so when I looked at it, I said they really didn't do a real concise study to figure out whether or not people in rural communities yeah. had hookworm. And so most of the people that they documented with hookworm at that time were white. Mm. And that led to um, the development of policy and, uh, and support for private privies. And eventually, you know, I guess those communities are the ones that probably got the wastewater <laughs> treatment. Yeah. Uh, and, and the small plant treatment when, mm. when other communities were left behind. Wow. Um, the rural, uh, the issue of rural sanitation sits within the broader topic of environmental justice, a term that lives in the name of your center. So you can, can you say what the term environmental justice means to you and why it fits so tightly with your work? Well, environmental justice means that people that live in, that live in communities should have access to clean water and clean air, and, and also the treatment of their wastewater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they should be able to flush the toilet and not see it on top of the ground, mm -hmm. or, or coming back into their homes. Or they shouldn't have septic systems that contaminate their water. They shouldn't have, um, they shouldn't always be the places where they locate the dirty plants. Mm. Uh, that they create air pollution. So and those communities, by and large, in this country tend to be marginalized communities. They are yeah. either communities of color or they're poor community. Yeah. Because I've seen in Appalachia, same thing. Sure. Uh, and I've seen uh, there, there are Hispanic communities that are suffering from uh, an undue burden of air pollution. And a lot of those communities also don't have access to quality uh, uh, infrastructure. So over and over again, where the highways are located, the highways where, because there are toxins that come from these cars and these highways are generally going through 
communities of color. And one of the places that I've gone to that I think exemplifies environmental justice on steroids is Cancer Alley. Mm -hmm. And if you were- Where's that at? That's in Louisiana. It's in Louisiana. And if you go to that area, it's pretty much between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Mm -hmm. If you go through that area, it's like a Disney world of petrochemical plants. Yeah. And the, the history there is so stark because you can see the plantations. And in some cases, the cabins, the slave cabins are still there. And the land was sold to these, these multinational corporations, uh, largely f- uh, from absentee landlords who had owned yeah. these plant- plantations. And Black communities, Black people still live close. And some of them were like right next to these plants. I saw them next to schools, next to yeah. churches. And the, cam- the chemicals that they're producing, most of us would not want to live next to any of those yeah. plants. But they're telling, you know, but those, those people have lived there for generations, well, for yeah. well over 100 years. In some cases, the plants are buying the areas that even house the, house the dead, mm. you know, where the graveyards are located, like in St. James Parish. People there have to get permission from the plant to be able to go and visit their loved ones, the graves. So it is it's, those are examples of environmental justice issues. Or when I went to um, when I went to uh, Kentucky and West Virginia, and people talked about fracking in their communities yeah. and how uh, I remember one woman told me and she was white. She said, "When we light our water, it it burns." Yeah, the, that's environmental. That those are environmental justice issues. Yeah. And, and, and I, I believe that we have a responsibility to making sure that we live in balance with earth. Yeah. And that money is not the, always the operating factor for why we make choices and what we do. Mm-hmm. And economic development should not mean that in order to support one's family, one has to accept uh, the harm yeah. that comes Cancer. from yeah, like cancer yeah. and other kinds of illnesses, respiratory illnesses that people have in these communities that they they normally would not have if they were more affluent. Yeah. You know, when I was looking into this topic, I was writing this book with my buddy, Andy Russell. It's called The Innovation Delusion. And I was, I was learning about your work in Lowndes and other places where rural sanitation is a problem. And I really felt like this is a topic that cuts right to the heart of, of different conceptions of justice that's, that's in our country. So you know, after I, I read about these issues, you know, my feeling is that collectively we need to do more, uh, including at the level of, of federal policymaking. Um, but you know, if I was a libertarian or some other kind of economic conservative, I might say like, look, you do what you want in your own house, that's your own business. But you also need to like keep it up. Um, that's part of your responsibility. Um, and I think your book really shows how that response is, you know, it just doesn't make any sense because people don't have the money to do that. Um, but what would you say to someone who had that kind of, you know, like responsibility mindset when it comes to these issues? What I would say to them is I want you to go and live there for 30 days and then you come back and tell me how they can be responsible. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are saying this from their worlds because they haven't lived in that world. Yeah. They don't have, they, they and, 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 I, and I see this all the time. I think people sometimes are well-intentioned mm-hmm. 
But sometimes, you know, if you had a perspective of privilege, then of course you, it's, it's hard to understand it. That's the reason why I take people there to see it. Yeah. And, and the people that I've taken to see it, no matter what their background is, they, they've come away with it in most cases saying, we have to do something to change this. We have to do something to change this instead of uh, blaming the victim. Because uh, in this case, there's so many different factors that are involved. And some of it is climate change. Yeah. And, and some of it is the greed of people who benefit from the problem, who don't want to change because they feel like, oh, I won't have a job. They don't see this as an opportunity to innovate and find something that really works. And, and, and everybody would need this, not just people here in the South. There are people around the country and around the world that would need that type of innovation once we come up with something that works. Mm -hmm. You're one of the co-authors of a report titled Flushed and Forgotten, Sanitation and Wastewater in Rural Communities in the U.S., which I'll direct listeners to. Uh, it contains a number of recommendations in terms of policy and in lawmaking and such. So what are some of your top priorities when it comes to kind of the road forward on rural sanitation issues? I think one of the top priorities is making sure that the policy as it is written does not exclude rural communities. Hmm. There's something that I call the rural lexicon. And in the rural lexicon, oftentimes well-intentioned politicians will write and draft policy that would exclude rural communities by having language such as, um, if the funding becomes available, uh, the funding will only go to towns. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of the U.S., a lot of rural U.S. is not in a town; it's unincorporated. Right. So that excludes all of those areas. Um, or it may say that it has to have a, a certain population number to qualify for it. Then it excludes everybody else. Yeah. So, and I hear people all the time. Um, you know, when they come to our communities and they try to document these problems, they look at, uh, for an example, when I grew up, my, my mailbox was, um, my, post, my, my address included Hainville, Alabama. I didn't live in Hainville, Alabama. I lived in the community of Hicks. Right. You know, in Gordonville. So people don't understand. I've had to talk to journalists who asked me, Catherine, what town were you from? I wasn't from a town. They just yeah. assumed that because a town is in the, um, they assumed that because a town is in the address, that means that you live in that town. No, that's where we got our mail. It came through the post office yeah. there. So it's those kinds of things about rural communities that we're going to really write policy that can impact rural communities in a positive way. We have to understand how rural communities are organized. We also have to move away from using formulas to try to get information. Mm. For an example, I think the census does not count people in rural communities fairly. Yeah. Because it's, it's quite often that you could live in a, on a property in a rural community and have one mailbox and five families there. Yeah. So when they count them, they, the, the, the formula is set up to only count one house per address. But the country is not organized yeah. that way. So those are the kinds of things that I think that we have to do first and foremost so we can have the justice and the equity that should, uh, that should be in rural communities because currently they're being excluded and they're dying as a result of that. Yeah. And I think the rural communities to me hold the, the key to the future in terms of when people have to relocate and move away from these cities because of climate change, 
uh, because of sea level rise and flooding and all the things that would come with what we know is going to happen. A lot of these areas that are vacant right now, a lot of these areas that are sparsely populated may end up in the areas where we have to be. And we need to solve these problems now before it becomes a crisis. Hmm. Catherine, thank you for your work. Thank you for being an inspiration and thank you for coming on Peoples and Things. If people wanna learn more about you, um, contribute uh, to your cause, you know, where, where, where would you point people to learn more about what you're up to? Uh, we actually have a website, www.creej.com, uh, C-R-E-E-J, excuse me, .org, www.creej.org. Mm -hmm. uh, you can Google me. Uh, I'm available on social media. You can follow me through Twitter, uh, Instagram. I'm on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. There are numerous ways to reach out. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, if you feel like you can contribute in some way. But I think the first thing that I'm asking people to do yeah. is look around in your own areas mm. and help us to understand and develop and map where these problems are around the country. I think that's the best way to do it because if we keep playing whack-a-mole yeah. <laughs> and just thinking we fix this area and we give it yeah. to 100 families here or 20 families there, that that's the solution. That's yeah. not a solution. There's so many more families that are left behind and we can, I think this is an opportunity for us to help all of them and lift up everybody in this country that if we're going to be the wealthiest nation in the world, at the very least, everybody should be able to flush and forget. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. Thanks.